Hello and welcome to episode 7 of Needle Not Standing. I am delighted to be joined by garden designer and TV presenter, Jamie Gavin. Jamie, how are you? I'm good, Paul. Thanks for coming. Great to have you here. Yeah, it's a lovely house, lovely surroundings and a nice little studio. It makes a difference. Yeah, this is where, this is at the top of the house and it's where I do my work from, uh, either inside or outside. I can work outside from one of those seats, uh, doing drawings or doing writing during the summer and inside at this time of year. Nice, nice, nice. Yeah, it's such a lovely place up in the Wicklow Mountains. We won't give away your address, but uh, I suppose um, just to kind of bring it in from a lighthearted point of view, just to start off with, and it was kind of something I was uh, doing last night in the course. If you had to pick three ideal uh, dinner guests, ah, who would you choose and why? That's funny. I've spent the morning doing exactly that. Well, I'm interested to hear so. Well, uh, I've, I've done it for a different reason. So for a very specific reason, because the British ambassador is coming to dinner and I thought who would be fun. So for that, as far as I've got, has been Hugh Wallace, um, who I think would be great fun in that sort of dinner party. So in December, I'll let you know how it went. <laughs> uh, otherwise, who would be three great dinner guests? Uh, don't know. Willy Wonka. Why? The desserts would be just amazing. Uh, and he's kind of wacky, isn't he? Uh, kind of surreal, kind of dark. So Willy Wonka would be one. Um, a guy who produces a podcast called The Daily. What's his, uh, Michael Navarro, I think his name is. You want to get his name before you invite him to dinner? Yeah, I better. <laughs> so he does a, pod a podcast every morning uh, from the Washington Post about uh, what's happening. He takes one story in depth, and by the time you wake up, it's there. And I'm fascinated by politics and stuff like that, especially in the light of Trump and post-Trump and whatever. So Michael Navarro, to understand the workings of that and the... Third would be, um, who, uh, a garden designer who worked in Brazil from about the 1950s to the 1980s called Roberto Burle Marx. So those three would be interesting. And what, what is it about Roberto that would make you want to have him? He was a great, he was a graphic designer. He loved the indigenous flora of Brazil. So everything we would regard as houseplants with big, broad architectural leaves. So he, he put that idea of overall design, good lines and shape. You know, whenever you see pictures of uh, Rio de Janeiro, the tilings, the wavy. So he would have done that, the, the nice. paving and, and then the planting. So I liked the way he com uh, combined both of those and he had a great sense of fun. So... Um, him, I'd, uh, yeah, that'd be uh, three. We need some ladies there, though, too. Wouldn't yeah, we well, can only have three, so you might have to take out one or one or two. That's up to uh, you. I'm not dropping any of the boys now. Oh well, I'm sure your wife would be happy with that. <laughs> uh, what would she? Uh, Willie what? No, I don't think she'd like Willie Wonka. Uh, uh, Roberto, yeah, she'd be interested in Roberto uh, and Michael Navarro. She'd have an interest in that. Yeah, she'd be happy, yeah. and we'd all be looking at her. So. Yeah. Happy, happy wife, happy yeah. life, isn't that what they say? <laughs> That's it. Um, yeah, I suppose that kind of takes all the, the edge off things, just as a nice little kind of warm-up uh, going into the podcast. Um, I suppose, that, uh, talk to us about your, your, you know, your early days, I suppose, your your upbringing, where you're from, you know, for people who may not know, you know. So I was born in London because my parents, like so many of that of their generation, um, moved to London in 1959. When I was born in 1964, they moved back home. We lived for a while opposite, maybe this is the Willy Wonka fixation, we lived opposite the gates of the Cadbury's factory in Kulak uh, for a few years, and I remember that so clearly. That place still going strong. Still going strong, yeah, still going strong, and still has that idea of a 1950s factory uh, uh, about it 
it it it looks like it did way back then but i remember way back then the workers going in at about half past eight in the morning and pouring out um at about five o'clock and one lad who used to wait for his son leaning against our garden wall used to have the reject chocolates that he'd give to us so love that um so lived there and then uh, parents moved to Ratfarnham at the base of the Dublin Mountains and that's where I was brought up. As a kid I was a bit of a loner, not interested in all the stuff other kids were interested in and didn't really find myself and find my way until my mid-twenties. Okay, I did a bit of research uh, on you just because you know garden design and stuff isn't my forte, it wouldn't be my um, speciality like it obviously is yours. Uh, it'd be like you talking to me about football. Um, but I did read, you know, something unfortunate about your brother, and he, you know, I, I let you say it in your own words because what it says online, it's, it might be different to what you actually. Have. Well, we a very busy household. Uh, my parents had five children, and I was where I was second. Uh, actually, funnily enough, two of us were born on the eighth. Two were born on the eighth of May. Two were born on the tenth of May, and generally two years between uh, uh, everybody. Uh, and when I was going to school with my brother one day in uh, the early seventies, he was knocked down and killed. So that obviously had a big effect. It was his uh, mistake that he made. Uh, of course, I always remember it. He was born a year to the day later than me. So in a way, we were kind of like twins in uh, in a way. And I was the only one from the family with him. And that was awful, terrible. Um, everything you can imagine, I remember everything about it. But in particular, the effect it would have on your parents and on family life and whatever. And it had all those effects. Um, do, you, do you think you described yourself as a loner and stuff like that do you think that maybe that had an effect on you like tra like trauma wise I don't know if it did um, I don't know if it had it must have had an effect but I don't know if that was the cause of me, me being introverted it must have contributed to that how, sorry how old you would have been seven then would you I think I was six and he was five Oh, okay, sorry, you said online that he was six. Eh? Yeah, I don't, he might have been. Okay. It's one of those things I never look up. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you I never, actually didn't know at all. Yeah, that that had happened. Yeah, it was one of those things actually we never, that was never talked about. You know, obviously we remembered it. And when I did my first appearance on the Late Late Show with Gayburn, he brought it up. So that would have been in 1995. And that was a real challenge in a way, but a very cathartic thing for the family because once they heard me, I agreed that I would talk about it. Once they heard me talking about it, a lot of people rang my parents and reminisced about it and felt able to talk about it. But it's one of those things, one of those awful things. Uh, maybe it led to stuff in the house. My, certain, my dad certainly had his problems with depression and alcoholism, which runs, you know, rife in this country with, uh, with parents. So lived with all of that growing up and then as I say, eventually found myself. And I'm sure Connors that had a contribution to that. One of the things that in later years that I thought about was if you were five or if you were six and if you died, it would be awful to be defined by how you died if that was your life, those five or six years. So I remember an aunt in England telling me that Connor was a brat and I prefer to think of him as a smiley brat than of you know uh, how he came to his his end because I wouldn't like to be defined about how that you know how how uh, how I passed he was a troublemaker he was an awful lot of fun always getting into trouble and that's how eventually I decided you know just get on with it and it's a part of life isn't it mm. it's part of and many families have their things but certainly not easy but definitely not easy for my parents probably not easy for my older brother who was kind of more aware um yeah 
Because I think that obviously at six or seven, you're, you're, you're not, you're still living in fantasy land, you know, mm. in your head. I think most kids will be, you know, you're, you're not aware. You probably felt like a dream type thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Certainly I remember every bit of it, every bit of the kind of funeral. I remember there was a guard of honour from my school and me just showing my mates from school all the 50p pieces that my uncles had given so again quite, because that's the quite know. surreal in that way but i also remember the grief uh with my parents i remember that and i remember that for yeah a long time uh, to come the the kind of harrowing effect that that has on families and there's no getting away from that and there's no getting over it but we're <sighs> I remember going to visit the grave, you know, as a kid. And, you know, all the time it was always the same and always awful. Uh, but from that age, I think we got to... There was always... That was a thing in Irish families, wasn't it? Uh, so you come to terms with it one way or other. I suppose as well, depression and stuff like that isn't highlighted like it is now. Back then as well, you know, so, so when... Probably your dad or, or other family members are experiencing this. You're, you're probably not as wise to it now. I'd say you would be safe. It was your kid now. You'd be kind of more open to a you know talking mental health sort of thing. Whereas obviously back then it wasn't. Well, it it wasn't such a big thing. But the remarkable thing in the family was it also wasn't hidden and wasn't something that you couldn't talk about. Uh, you didn't oh, talk good, about yeah. it. But I had no embarrassment about it, or I had no. It was awful because that, you know, who who was a brilliant man would often take to the bed and so, for weeks, for days, for weeks, sometimes to hospital for months. So it was, uh, and I would cycle off to visit him wherever he was in out in Lucan or in St Pat's in town. But it, so it was something that hung over the family, but certainly was dealt with in a very progressive in a very progressive way. It was, the regret there is that he was a brilliant man, born too soon. If he had been born when I was born, he would have all the, had all the opportunities and the kind of creative opportunities that he didn't have, but he allowed us to have. Hmm. So that's, um, that, that's a real regret. However, he went on to really find great joy in what happened to me. And he was around for all of that, and he was around for that at the wildest times of stuff, happened, uh, of stuff happening to me. And he had his own passions in life and took great joy in music and opera and, you know, those type of things. Mm. Yeah, that must give you a lot of satisfaction. I suppose we'll we'll talk about your, your teenage years. You said you didn't really find yourself till, till you were 20. Why was that, or was it just kind of you were just going through life and... I was just different, Paul. I was just different. I went to school in Temple Hill College, which was a perfectly fine school, but I was, I couldn't relate to much. I couldn't relate to the way that school operated, the way lessons were thought, the lessons themselves. I wasn't particularly good about study, about doing my homework. So therefore, you're treated as stupid, both in school and outside school, in family situations, all of all of that. However, I didn't think I was stupid, so I didn't fall into that kind of box myself. Uh, and I didn't think there was anything wrong with being a dreamer. Uh, so I was resilient, and I suppose I learned to be resilient and learned to realise I'd find my own way. Uh, but school days weren't for me, and it was only really when I got to my working life and when then subsequently after working for a few years that I went to college that I really found myself, and only really truly found myself when I started working for myself and building my own thing. Yeah, no, I totally relate to that because I, I was the same in school, bit of a class clown. You, you, you know me this way. I just, I, I do a lot of laughing and a joke and making other people uh, laugh. So teachers obviously don't like that when they're trying to teach a lesson, you know. So for me, it was, you know, I'd be always getting kicked out of class and stuff like that. Again, I would never do my homework. And school just wasn't for me in that sense. Like I loved being there for the crack, but I wasn't there for the learning. Like my leaving cert was terrible. But as you say, then when you go on to to into the future like 
I started working for myself five years ago now I'm still in the process of that but definitely I feel like when you're working for yourself you work that that mile more you work that extra bit harder and because uh, you want to achieve it because in many ways I look at it you know if you don't succeed at something that you're really pushing out then you're putting out there it's almost that kind of fear of failure that drives you on I know it definitely drives me on um, but probably in your point of view because I look at what you've achieved and everything you've done and I'm sure we'll, we will go into that in depth but um, when you look at it that way it definitely skill would make you believe that you are stupid but when you actually put your mind to certain things not specifically say maths or religion or science but if you have your calling then you know, yeah, you put 100% focus into that. I mean, I wasn't sure at that stage what my calling was. Yeah, I'd be quite jealous, and I'm always quite jealous of uh, hearing about those lads who, rather than been picked on for whatever reason, they found humor because I didn't have that gift, I couldn't do that. It would have been fantastic if I'd developed that skill, but it's not a natural skill. Uh, for me, so it's great that you had that. Uh, it got me in more trouble than I thought. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, because I, I, I used to skip class, and I, maybe I used to skip class with other lads, and they'd always get caught, but I was seen as this angelic guy who could never do anything wrong by authorities, by the, teachers, uh, uh, all, all of uh, of that. Uh, but it all builds up something uh, in you. And it's an important thing, isn't it, the education system? Uh, my own daughter is she's in her last year of school and you know i'm not saying she skips into school every day she's much more studious than i ever was much more intelligent in that way than i ever was academic was, maybe maybe uh, academic but school isn't something that i enjoy dropping her off uh, to each morning or collecting her from i don't envy anybody that and i wish there was another way and i wish there was a way that other skills and other character traits were appreciated and even developed maybe you know and even developed having said that a lot of stuff is an awful lot better because they're looked after better in school and mm. you have people who are taking care of their mental health um and all of that and also we you also ha have SNAs as well that are good for you know kids that are autistic and stuff like that, that that's right so it, the, it's it's more inclusive that way and also when i was growing up authority was everything whether it was the church whether it was your teachers whether it was politicians or whatever and we've lost that respect for authority until it's earned so the kids are a lot more kind of strident about um, making up their own minds and giving respect when it's earned, whoever it is. And I think that's a great thing about this country, that the country has changed because it wasn't in a good place during my years. I knew there was a lot of stuff that was wrong, but seeing all that turn around and this country becoming a fine little place mm. is really, really wonderful. Mm. And on that positive note, talk to me about how you got into garden when you... Uh I suppose because you 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 go you say you're twenties yeah, and then you you talk about coming into TV and stuff like that. How does someone go from not knowing their calling in their twenties to becoming a TV personality and presenter? Um, talk to us about that journey. So the journey was that around the time I was leaving school, I knew that I liked gardening, which is a weird thing for. Uh, 16, 17 year old, 18 year old today. Now, not traditional gardening. Back then, maybe. Yeah. Back, oh yeah, back then. Yeah, not that's that's quite right. Not so, not so much now. It's quite cool now. Uh, back then, it was very strange. I was very aware of my surroundings. I was very aware of the built environment. I was very aware of the house, the shape of houses. So, like Dermot Bannon might might be fascinated by a built environment. I was uh, aware of roads and trees and houses. And I was very aware of everything being the same. Everybody's house, where I grew up, looked exactly the same. And yet I was listening to maybe music like David Bowie or Brian Eno or let's say progressive people back there who were taking influence from places like London or New York or Berlin or something like that. So I hated the suburbs. I was really interested in them, but I wanted to be in the city. 
Not Dublin City, a different city where stuff seemed to be happening. I like gardens in that I saw them as being very twee and I wanted to change them. I was watching Willy Wonka. I was watching uh, that chocolate factory. I was watching that movie when the door opened and the kids saw that garden for the first time. And I was thinking, logically to me, why can't gardens be like that? Or why can't they be a little bit different anyway? So by the time I left school, I knew there were three things I was interested in. Being a chef, being a potter, because I had done pottery for uh, years as a hobby, or being a gardener. And I got a job in a city centre plant shop, an amazing shop. Uh, called Mackey's, which was Mackey's Seeds, which was on Mary Street, and which was uh, a place that everybody in the country came to buy their seeds and plants and their gardening equipment. And I used to cycle into the city centre every day and met this great bunch of people in this shop that had been going for two or three hundred years. Uh, so that traditional place. Um, actually, sorry, that's wrong. First of all, I got a job in a Temple Bar restaurant and worked there for about three months and loved every moment of it. But then a job came up in this shop and I said, I, no, that's what I want to do. So worked in the garden shop, worked there for three years, went and studied in the botanic gardens for three years, watched a program called Top of the Pops uh, every Thursday evening, watched people like Boy George, who was, and was aghast at people like Boy George uh, from Culture Club singing uh, on, uh, Thursday night, but wanted to bring those two cultures together, pop culture and gardening. I was the only one who wanted to do that. I wanted to blow up my parents' garden and create gardens that were different. And this was a drive in me that was so strong and had no, wasn't been affirmed or reaffirmed by anybody. Everybody said, you can't, you can't, you can't. You must do what's been done in suburbia, with rows of colourful plants or rose trees or um, orchards or vegetable patches. I had no interest in any of that. I wanted to do things that were different. That desire to do things that were different and to take influence from other spaces, be they kind of mad children's movies, be they cutting-edge pop, be they magazine design, anything like that. So the desire was to cook all this up into something that was different, even though right through my time in the shop and right through my time in college in the Botanic Gardens in Dublin, which were wonderful days, nobody had a clue what I was on about. Everybody thought I was just off his head, off his rocker. But I had this thing inside saying, look, they're not wrong to want to do things traditionally. But eventually I realised I was also not wrong to have ideas that were different. And that ideas that were different fueled me and fueled me through really rough times in Flatland and Dublin. But eventually I got there. Yeah, like I, I see it in that regard, obviously, bringing it back to what I said earlier about having your own business. Even myself, I said I was going to make this YouTube channel, I was going to interview footballers and I was like laughing at me going, that's the worst thing I've ever watched in my life. And then almost, when because they don't see your vision, and why would they? It's your vision. Do you know what I mean? The same way that would have been with you there, it's your vision that you see. Maybe other people don't see it, but as long as you see it and you can see it happening, then that's all that really matters, I think. And pushing through then. And yeah. pushing through just the shit days. And because I had maybe 10 years of shit days. I knew... I had an idea. I also knew I, I had a talent. That was the other thing that I was lucky enough to have. I could go into anybody's garden anywhere and make it better. And it came so easy to me. Really easy. It came so easy to me that I got bored doing it. The pretty stuff for pretty people. Um, but I got to the stage, Paul, where my friends were getting married, buying houses, having kids, and I was being kicked out of flats and being homeless. I got to the very, because the dream wasn't coming true. I got to the very end where I was kind of a pathetic specimen. The one that got left behind. The one that had been told I was going to be a street sweeper. 
which is a perfectly respectable job to be. But when I was told I was going to be a street sweeper, it was in a derogatory way. Um, is that fuel then to, to drive on? No, it wasn't fuel to drive on. It was just an interesting thing to note that people close to me thought, and people very close to me thought that's what I would become. Because I didn't think so. But it did get to the stage where the dreams weren't coming true. And I was losing anything I had. It got to the stage where I was in a flat in... What, sorry, what age are you at this point? Oh, I wasn't Roughly. young. I was 27, 28. So young, yeah. And yeah, relatively young, but not when everybody else is building something. Yeah. So I was in this flat in Rapmines, in Windsor Road in Rapmines, and a guy from... You used rent televisions then, but you used rent stereo systems too. And a guy, I couldn't even afford the two quid a week for the stereo system. So he came and repossessed that. And the following day, the landlord came to get my keys for the flat. And my friend, I had two black bin liners with whatever possessions clothes. And my friend cycled away with them on his bicycle. And I had nothing. And that was 28, 29. And he cycled away, and I didn't even a place to sleep. I could go back to my parents' house, but that was giving up. I didn't a place to sleep that night or the night after or, or whatever. And I had all these silly dreams. Um, so that wasn't young. That was... And to be middle class from a respectable place, with a good education, with good achievements behind me in terms of... It wasn't the best moment. So... And to hold on to the ideas or the dreams then, was a challenge. And how did you do it? Because, you know, I couldn't imagine, you know, if you told me there, I, I, I wouldn't know what I'd do. You know, I know it is flight or fight or, yeah. fight or flight or survival mode, but like, how, how is that experience? How is that, you know, even that mindset shows great character about yourself though as well. It, it, it does, but it also shows a dangerous uh, thing. Um, on the day itself, I remember walking in. I had enough money for a bus fare. So I walked into Dame Street. And the 16 bus went up to my parents' house in Redfarnham. And I walked in and I watched the buses come and go and come and go. And I remember standing at that bus stop. And I presume I went to my parents' house. I remember standing there at the bus stop thinking every step I take now, no matter how small the steps were, had to be in the right direction or else I was fucked. And I equated that with the steps upstairs on the, on the bus. Every step had to, had to be right. The issue with me, and it's a dangerous place to be, Paul, is that I was a fantasist. And a, fa a fantasist with nothing to back them up is a dangerous place to be. I was probably a fantasist with some resilience. So I believed enough in the idea to make it happen. And I made, I, I got my, by luck, I got my act together. And within a year, everything had changed. Mm. But I was still sleeping on those sofas a few nights here and a few nights there for a period of time. I was smart enough though, to, at that stage, realise nobody was going to do it for me, look for opportunity and take those few little steps to the next and to the next and to the next. And, you know, within a couple of years, life had changed beyond recognition. But if it hadn't worked that way, it's kind of a dangerous place to be. Yeah, of course. At that stage, there's no, like, social media or anything like that where you can grow yourself or grow your following or, or anything like that where you can actually... You look at things like TikTok now where people can just get an overnight following of 100-something followers from a story like that you've just said there, whereas you would have obviously had to graft so much harder back then. It's very good there was no social media in, in my case. I went through a period, I'd bounce checks you know, doing gardens, not being able to pay nurseries, not being able to pay for uh, supplies. Things weren't going well. I didn't want to come out of a room. I remember my big thing is I'll never walk down Grafton Street in case I meet somebody who I owe money to. I wanted to hide away, so social media wouldn't have helped me. I was in 
an awful situation in that regard with a very small group of friends or, or whatever, who I was continually letting down. Um, and letting down, not actually letting them down, but talking about dreams that were never going to happen. It's just making a fool of myself all the time. Hmm. I suppose, well, just fr- from that point, obviously, you know, you, you did get yourself in a good situation. Where was the first real breakthrough? The first breakthrough... When, when did life change then for you? Life changed in, in, a, in a way, in a, in a, in a funny way. I, I was brought up in a middle-class class household. I was brought up with good manners to be polite. Uh, I had, when I worked, at a very strong work ethic. And I had one client who would also, the USBA competition, the Garden Festival in the RDS. And I had a client, and she would tell her husband, who worked for a chemical company, uh, not a chemical company, uh, well, what's the... Deodorant company. Uh, Aerosol. Impulse. You know that company, Impulse, or that brand, Impulse. It's a deodorant that everybody uses. <laughs> it's probably still on the shelf. So this woman, Barbara, used to tell her husband to sponsor me to build a garden at this festival in the RDS. And generally, even if I hadn't a car, I'd borrow it. And even if I couldn't really afford to do a garden, I'd go and I'd do it. And the gardens weren't amazing, but they were generally better than anybody else's. So I'd win the medal. And this particular year, I still went back because I could get three grand from this company, from Impulse, the brand, go and do the Impulse Garden in the RDS, go and party with my friends, you know, because he's won the medal again and get a bit of attention. And somebody, we built a garden and it was nice, it was pretty, not the type of garden that I was particularly into. But somebody walked past the garden with their friend, a woman called, a woman who I knew, her name was Fanola Reed, and she used to work in the Botanic Gardens where I'd studied. And she said to her friend, she looked at my garden, and she said to her friend, that's almost Chelsea Flower Show standard. And I overheard this, she wasn't talking to me. And I just thought, what is this thing? the Chelsea Flower Show, I knew vaguely about it. So between the jigs and the reels, I got myself to London and I knocked on the door of the organisation that ran the Chelsea Flower Show. And I said to them, I want to build a garden here. Me, homeless, with nothing, absolutely nothing back home and telling these people I want to do, build a garden at their show and they laughed me out of the place absolutely laughed me out of the place nobody in it had been going kind of 90 years at that stage and nobody had ever walked in off the street don't mind from little ireland and said you so they belittled me they made me go absolute red and uh i walked out of the place humiliated by them and i just ringing in my ears they're right that was a stupid thing to do they're right and my parents are right and my friends are right and the guy in college is right and all the other people who know i went and won that gold medal but sneered at me because nothing would ever happen are right and they all hear me talk the big talk and it's not going to happen and when am i going to cop on that it's not going to happen but it a year later that organization sent me an application form for their show, even though they'd laughed me out of the place. And I sent off an application thinking this is going to be it, that this was the golden ticket. I was utterly convinced. And my application was rejected. So again, remember, Paul, I'm another year older, another rejection, another feeling cycling down my parents' driveway of they've told me no when am i going to get the message uh and then six months later somebody dropped out of their show and they rang me and said actually could you do it you only have six months and you need a lot of money but could you do it and by needing a lot of money they meant back then which was 1995 i needed 60 grand and I walked in to that showground 
a month before I was due to present a garden, 300 quid in my pocket. And I had a pile of stones in Dublin and a pile of plants in fertiliser bags being eaten by cows in balanced skellics in County Kerry and three weeks and three days to build a garden. And I got it built. But it's a dangerous time because again, I found myself in the middle of that, homeless in London, with a friend, having convinced him to help me. Um, the last three days, nothing to eat, nothing to eat. And uh, popular with everybody because we were a disaster and we were no threat to everybody. Everybody loved us. We were at home, but we got the garden built and nobody noticed. But that, it was, it was weird. We got the garden built and after the show, we got it taken down and we sold all the stuff to an Irish expat. So we had enough money to get home. And in the pub, um, a week later, we were telling some people, some girls, a girl called Ursula Courtney and Anita Nataro, because I used to teach. I had my own evening classes. It was the only thing I did well was teach because I loved the subject and I could inspire about the subject. I was telling these girls and Ursula, they were amazed. You what? You went over to London and the adventure in London was without any money was, was mad. And I was telling... Very brave though as well. It was brave or stupid. Yeah, it turned out to be brave, but it sounds... It turned out to be okay. It was also manipulative. It was also, you know, all sorts of other things and not a route I would advise anybody to go down. Uh, but I was telling these two girls and Ursula rang me the following day. She said, that story you told last night in the pub, is that true? And I said, yeah, it was all true. And she said, I didn't tell you, but I'm a researcher for The Late Late Show. And we have, uh, we have a guy booked on next, next Saturday night, because it was a Saturday night at the time. And he's the premier of Newfoundland, but I think he's going to be very boring. If I could convince Gayburn to drop him and to take you instead, would you come on and tell the story the way you told it to me? And I said, okay. And I'll never forget it because it was at a time when everybody knew what was on the Late Late Show. And if you didn't see it, you... Uh, you heard about you it. You heard about it. Or down the pub or something, as exactly. you say. Like, you asked somebody who was on. Was there anybody yeah. on? And there I was the next Saturday evening with my parents and friends in the audience and the lad who had helped me at that Chelsea, you know, in the audience telling my story and telling the story about Connor because she asked me about Connor. And I didn't really want to talk about it, but Gabe did. And the following, that Saturday night, I was telling my story. So all of a sudden, I was somebody. I was that lad who'd been on the late late telling this story about going off to England and building a garden, which was weird. And things started to happen. And between the long and the short of it, um, things started to happen. Enough things happened to some weird stuff, weird shit happened too. I was no longer invited out by my college mates for the Christmas do. I was thinking Christmas came and went, and uh, you know, nobody rang to go for the drinks. And this was Ireland back then, and I hope it's changed. I wasn't particularly Mr. Popular anyway. I'm not, yeah. I wouldn't have been the life and soul of the party, but somebody eventually told me, Oh. You went on the Late Late Show and the lads thought you got above your station. So we all had a place we were meant to stay. These were the college mates that I'd been through, you know. Yeah. And I wasn't invited for Christmas drinks because... That's just pure begrudgery more than anything but it sounds like. And I presume I would have been one of them too, the begrudgers, if it had been somebody else. Mm. I just think that's an Irish thing though. More, more than most. Yeah, well, whatever. It was a very real thing, and uh, and and back then. But other stuff uh, <laughs> began to happen. So then, enough stuff happened to bring me over to that competition in London the following year. 
to do a garden that I really wanted to do. I'd gone the first year and brought a traditional Irish garden because I thought that's what they'd expect. I'd got a bronze medal. It was easy to get a bronze medal. I went back the following year with my idea of changing the world of gardens, Paul, with a garden based on the video for Billie Jean, Michael Jackson dancing down the street. Every time his foot touches the ground, it illuminates, the pavement illuminates. I did a garden based on that. And as I was making it, I realised I couldn't do it. And what I was making was a big grand mess an absolute mess a horrific thing and that was just confirmed by everybody who would drop by and have a look and then scurry off and it was confirmed by the judges who came along it's impossible not to get a medal at Chelsea absolutely impossible you have to do something really bad and not only did we not get a medal, we got a letter from the judges saying it was so bad they couldn't award anything and they couldn't understand. This just doesn't happen at that show. So it was a humiliation because people knew that we were doing it um, this year. So when I thought I was going to change the world of garden design, when I'd been given every chance, when I'd been given an entry into the hallowed turf, like the Wembley uh, or the Aviva of gardening, I couldn't do it. Uh, and I was fighting with people and I was this, because I knew I'd been found out. I knew I was, the emperor had no clothes. I knew I was completely bare. I told everybody, this is what contemporary design looks like. This is my influence. And okay, it wasn't awful, but it wasn't good. And the BBC came along and they said, look, we're doing something on, so it was 30 at this stage, Young gardeners at Chelsea, and we went to film your garden, and they sent Alan Titchmarch around, which was a thrill because he was like the Ronaldo of gardeners. And this guy came along and he scratched his head when he saw my stuff. And I said, It lights up at night. And he said, Right, I'll come back at night to see it. And on a Wednesday night, the program was that I featured in was to go out and I watched in a hotel room with friends. I was a thrill being on. Imagine being on BBC uh, in England. And there was my garden and there was Alan coming along to see my garden. And you could see he wasn't loving it. And you, you could hear me say, it lights up at night. And you could hear him say he'd be back, but he didn't come back. And the program ended with Alan going into another garden, a very English garden, and laying down on a bed that was made of plants and falling asleep and dreaming of all the gardens he'd seen at Chelsea that year, not our garden. And the credits rolled. And after they rolled, you just saw me from a high shot, from a, what would be a, a drone shot now. And you heard me say, where's Alan? Because there was me, Billy and no mates, waiting for Alan to come back. And I, whereas Alan, he'll never know what he missed. And I watched it and I hated it. And I thought it was very stage Irish. It wasn't, but I was, I hated it. But I went back to the showgrounds the following morning. I was thrilled to be on the beep. It was amazing to see, the, you know. I went back to the showground the following morning and there was a security guy, a black guy on the gates who had no more interest in gardening. And he looked at me. And he was looking at my pass and he says, you're that guy. And I said, what guy? The guy that was on telly last night with that cool garden. I said, what? And I, I went into the showground and there were loads of people looking at the garden. It had looked brilliant on television. And that day, my life changed forever, completely and utterly. Didn't understand it at the time, but from that moment, everything changed. And within weeks, I'd never been asked to do anything in my life. I'd always been asking, could I have a chance yeah, at this? Always wanted an opportunity. Yeah. Always wanted opportunity. You're too young or you're too silly or you're too stupid. Uh, could I do this garden? Could I do it? All of a sudden, I think the same day, would you, we're making a television show, would you be a guest on this 
and then because you were really good on that thing last night and within a year weirdly i was presenting the coverage of that show on television with first of all monty don and then with alan titchmarsh and whatever everything changed overnight or for all those years and then i didn't know who i was and whatever but that's what changed everything hmm, like do you, do you find that mad because you, you said you're like you're alone and then you're you're going into gardens and meeting so many people then you're you're presenting tv shows like were you just brought in and then they just give you media training your, your thoughts no present? no you're not they're to- they tell you you can do this and they can they tell you the camera likes you and i suppose you're irish nobody would look at me back home Nobody would yeah, look at me back home. Or to wouldn't look. I was nothing to be over there. All of a sudden, I was something different. I also dressed a little bit different. I was watching all these guys on Top of the Pops. So I was wearing leather trousers. For a gardener wearing leather trousers, which was a big shock to me. Just do something that's different. Be rock and roll about it and whatever. And it all combined to look different. I sounded different. And I had a garden that looked different. And then all of a sudden people were telling you, you can do this. And what television, what do you mean? I don't understand any of it or whatever you, and so you learn on the job. So it was, it was a very disorienting time. I'd also met somebody back home who liked me and whatever. And that was weird. Been So I was in a relationship and uh, which looked like it might have a future. And she was saying to me, I believe in you. And her mom and her friends were very influential and they were beginning to say, oh, you must go and do this and do that and the other. So all this combination of life changing just like that was weird and lonely. But, all you know, after a while, you just go with it and you get confidence and you learn your trade, whether it's a trade of television or how to make gardens. And it it wasn't easy. And it was a slow burner, luckily for me, but it led to kind of a mad 10 years in England and gave me a voice and led me to become somebody. I look at it like, and I was researching through, like, you you, you know, it's probably before my generation, um, you would have been huge on TV, like, especially like the BBC, the RT had you on then, maybe not at that stage, but obviously later on. Um, so, like... Now you'd be known everywhere. How was that journey to, 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 I suppose, from homelessness to, to fame? It was. And how did you, how did you find it personally? I, I didn't find it easy. I found it very confusing. Luckily, nothing for the first year. I only knew stuff was happening. But I found myself in Britain with suitcases going from one city to the next to the next because... I did, even in the first year, I did a huge amount of local programming. Um, we, I did a program called Surprise Gardeners for Midlands TV or something like that. We were based out of Manchester. We'd make a program a day, a makeover program a day. And I was the designer, not the main presenter. And, but then I was doing this program called Collector's Lot for Channel 4. So I'd leave one program go to a train, everything was printed out. Nobody had mobile phones or anything at that stage. Uh, Everything was printed out, try and get a train to this, late night in the hotel, meet a new crew, go and do this programme. Then I'd go and do to another television studio in Leeds and do what's through the keyhole um, about people's houses and uh, whatever. So it built up slowly, a lot of the stuff I was doing was not garden related because I was a new guy and uh, and it took a while and it was very disorienting and I was meeting new people all the time and everybody wanted to be my friend because of your scene is hot in television all of a sudden. Uh, so very, very, very confusing. Validating in some way that you were somebody and you were having fun and I was earning money. I'd never earned a penny. I'd never earned a penny. I was earning money. So all of that, really confusing. But it built up slow enough for me to get used to the fact. And then it came to a certain year, 2004, where I was everywhere doing everything. I could go to Buckingham Palace. 
I could go to 10 Downing Street. The Prime Minister wanted to know me. The Prince wanted to know me. I was doing all the windows of Harrods. And I ended up presenting Top of the Pops one evening. So, just weird. Weird. Weird, weird, weird. I was going on to Radio 1 with bottles of champagne uh, in England. When I had new books coming out, I was all, posters all over the place. Mad. I was driving a new Jaguar convertible every year, doing working incredibly hard, partying incredibly hard, and living the life of Riley and not getting lost, but enjoying every, because it was a slow build up. Uh, so it went up so it, and everybody did know who, who it was. Not in the Jamie Oliver type of way, because it was around the same time as him. And I'd meet him occasionally at things and meet the pops. Uh, just mad stuff. Loved it. And then it gently cooled down to something that was um, better, healthier. We had a baby and I decided, right, that's that. That's that with England. That's that with uh, socialising. That's that with everything. And I just brought it all down to a very manageable, nicer way of living yeah, and it became a bit family yeah because um it's it's actually quite an inspiring story you might not look at it that way but like i i've obviously worked with you and we can't go into it too much because the, the episodes are going to come out soon um but you know i've i've seen you kind of with people you can be socially awkward as well and I, I think that's just maybe your personality but like if you get on with someone say if a connection with someone generally you're fine but i think maybe because like, there's generally like, gatherings of people and stuff like that, and they all kind of want to be like you. Whereas, well, it's another aspect you've t- you've touched on something there that I haven't mentioned. I was painfully shy most of those years. Painfully shy. If any, weird for a guy who's on television. You know, if yeah, I went, but some to, people can have social anxiety as well. So I, 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 I'd really bad. So good. I'm absolutely fine if I'm in a group and feel safe and and nothing to do with television, nothing to do with becoming famous or anything like that. Just painfully shy. If I remember the day after 9-11 going off, we were filming something in Korea for a week or 10 days or something like that. The crew went home. I wouldn't leave the hotel room. I had two days in Seoul and Korea on my own. I wouldn't leave the hotel room. If room service, I couldn't get room service because I couldn't answer the door to anybody. And that was with me being, nobody in Korea knew who it was. It's just meeting other people. If anybody looked at me walking down the street, just go bright red. That took a long time to change. And you're right, on the, it's an interesting observation for you. I can seem standoffish and um, whatever, because on the project we worked on, you'd meet a lot of people. I don't know how to... And I don't want to relate to people. I'm not good with people. With the people I'm okay with, I'm very good. With the people who are building stuff with me or whatever, I absolutely adore them and I'm brilliant with them. But for a lot of the thing, the uh, uh, yeah, I'm I'm just I'm just not good. I'm not part of the gang, and indeed I don't want to be. I, I'm very happy uh, in my own little because you, you get to the stage thinking god you're very lucky you've i can size people up very fast very well and whatever and i know who i want to spend time with and i know who i don't um so the socially awkward absolutely remains true like i went to a, a book launch in town the other evening somebody invited me and it was something i felt i i should go to and I thought, will I bring somebody and who will I bring? And I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm going to go and I'm going to steal. Not many people do this, steal myself for it, get in, do my thing, spend an hour and then escape and mm. without letting anybody know. And we were on something. I think he said to me in a message, oh, you were gone. Yeah, I just disappear. I think it's called, I go down to Kerry, County Kerry an awful lot. And at parties or dinners or whatever down there, it's called the Kerry exit. You just disappear. I love just disappearing. Well, I suppose you can take in a lot of, a lot of energy, um, you know, the people are coming up to you the whole time. And I suppose they're coming to you 
with their life story constantly where obviously you have your story they know you don't know theirs but you'd probably get one person come up to you they spoke to you about f five ten minutes and then you have another person come with the same thing but their story for five ten minutes and then eventually it comes around to other people and before you know it, your night's kind of over so it can i get because i've seen it firsthand why that would get annoying but no not saying that you say it's annoying but I can see why it got annoying for for, for many people, I suppose. It's not a just funny one, Paul, because um, I was very pleased of it. When you're shy like that and you walk into a room and I had just the horrors growing up, the, especially around my teens and my early 20s, all of that. When you're shy like that, going into a room and feeling like you're nobody, but anybody that looks at you, if somebody asks, I wouldn't, I couldn't handle it. I've been to parties where 10 minutes after I walked in and, and I'd gone with a group of friends. I spent from 10 p.m. until 3 a.m. sitting on my own in the car outside, waiting for the party to be over and waiting because I couldn't handle it. Then something happens to you and people know who you are. And it's a huge thing that I was very grateful for because then people know something about you. You don't have to give excuses for yourself existing. You deserve to exist. And then a little bit older, you just get bored with it all and whatever, but, and you're amused that you were that person, that you were either person that you, but it, it got to a stage where it's your job to make people relaxed and comfortable. And it's a, a funny job for me. And now I'm in the kind of in between the things. On projects, there's a lot of people I don't want to go near. I just want to do my job. And then if I get to work with people who have a particular craft or who are particularly decent and you would fall into that, you had a great gift for making everybody feel really at ease. Uh, I would like being part of that sort of gang, but I'd also be very... Um, I'd always know who... Uh, I am, and I'm very at home with that now. And if I leave and disappear, I still don't care. Yeah, I suppose just following on from that, you know, you're, I suppose you're still doing bits, but probably not as much because you, you say you, you've, you've got your, your daughter, your wife. Um, but how does that lead on from it? Because, I mean, I was reading there, you were like making guest appearances on like Only Fools and Horses and, got, and all, like that's a huge program as well, you know? No, Only Fools and Horses wasn't a huge program. It was a sports relief program where they taught us to be, to ride Oh, sorry. And to, to jump. And I've done virtually every reality show during uh, in existence, virtually every quiz show in existence, because you get well paid uh, and you meet interesting people, other people who've achieved who are, you know, either doing these things with you or, or whatever. So life becomes very interesting. You get to travel uh, a, a bit. I'm never very far away from where I was in my mid-twenties, in my head. Um, so nothing really changes. So I haven't put myself in a comfortable situation or nothing really ever changes. Your personality doesn't change, your situation doesn't uh, really change. And also, I'm, I remain very driven so again from when i was 23 24 25 not being able to sleep with excitement about uh, you know getting to build a garden or something or uh, whatever in many ways i feel i'm only starting i have a voice now i can get meetings with people i have ideas and i have stuff that i want to do and it's as vital to me as when I was those ages. The ambition, the stuff I want to do is bigger, it's more exciting, and I have a better confidence uh, about that. I've no interest in kind of reputation or leaving something behind me. Or uh, I just want to do things and build things. So everything in ways remains the same. Uh, the little one is now about to turn 18 so in a way I've seen another life grow up 
and in a way it's very exciting she will go on to university or do learn whatever she wants to learn but in a way I will become an observer of that new life and it leaves me free to go and build, create, plant, uh, reinvent, paint. Um, even you've writing as well because you've done books, you've had a few books out over lockdown. <laughs> yeah, I did a book over lockdown but you get to do it. Actually, I really enjoyed the, the last book because I did it with uh, somebody else, with, with, with Paul Smith, which was it. But I've done like maybe 13 books so they don't become... Uh, you know, does a, another book really need to be written? And unless it really needs to be written, I won't. Uh, I, I I won't do it. Um, but there's lots of other stuff that I want to do, and excitement to be had. And that's the thing that will power me and keep me going and keep life interesting. Lots of adventures await. Yeah, I suppose just just. Um from now, yeah, just if anyone's watching the video, the dog's just distracting us here. Um, I was going to say, you know, we're obviously doing stuff now. That'll be out in the new year. Can't talk too much about that because it's going to be seen. Um, but I suppose, what's life like now for you? And what what do you get up to? Life is, is the same because I live inside my own head. The big difference between now post-pandemic and pre-pandemic I was running all the time. I lived in airports. I was doing an awful lot in China, doing a fair bit in places like France and, and, and whatever, and an awful lot in the UK. I've calmed that down an awful lot since then, and I'm really enjoying being more centered here, but concentrating on big projects for the future that are very ambitious. So what's life like? It's still the same. It's still a hustle, trying to get things done, but having fun while I'm, I'm doing it. Um, learning all the time. I became an ambassador for the uh, a United Nations organization, the Food and Agriculture Organization. They're based in Rome. I'm not long back from a big conference with them. So learning how that world works, still doing you know, appearances and shows and whatever. So, yeah, it remains fun, but I have stuff that I want to do. Except it's bigger. Yeah. I suppose you're in a unique situation now because as you say, you have um, the voice, probably the following as well. You have a hundred and something thousand followers on Instagram alone. So I'm sure uh, that obviously helps. And, you know, then you have people are coming to you and seeing your stuff as well? It is, but I think, yeah, I've, I'm, I'm not so, during lockdown, I was very active on Instagram, not so active anymore, because it gave me a, um, a sense of order during the day. We did lives, you know, most evenings and had people with their gardens and just had an awful lot of fun. And I really enjoyed that. Mm. Uh, and I got to know a lot of new young gardeners in this country and, kind of elsewhere so that was great but I'm not really that so I'm not very Instagrammable I'm not very social media savvy it's not my thing and I think people like kind of following me because they know there's mad stuff just around the corner and some people forgive me stuff and understand that I'm not the same as anybody else so it's an uncomfortable I have an uncomfortable relationship with that sort of media but I suppose I'm lucky the following is there and it allows me to do kind of other stuff. Mm. Again, because I go back to when you started out, like, you know, you didn't have that and you grew, you grew that. Yeah, that grew and people are interested. But I, you, know, you have to be very careful with, with, with that sort of stuff and not really believe it and not become a commodity to it. Yeah. Uh, well, if it goes tomorrow, then you lose all the following, isn't it? So it's not as important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you always have to come back to what really matters. And once you've identified what really matters, either at home or what you want to do, they're the things that fuel you. And they tend to bring people along. But the people coming along for the journey or the enjoyment or the wonder, that's an extra thing. I have to build stuff. I have to get ideas out there. That's what really 
keeps me going and will keep me going for a long time I hope mm. well it's a nice way to to leave it on that note so uh, listen thanks very much for your time I uh, really enjoyed that I, I, there was so much there that I actually didn't know about you that I got to know about you I'd sure if we had more time in another day we could do a part two um, and maybe we will in the future so listen Jamie thanks very much for your time thank you Paul I've enjoyed it yeah me too uh, guys if you're listening uh, on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or any podcast platform and uh, make sure to give it a five star review leave your feedback in the comments and if you're watching on youtube don't forget to like the video hit the subscribe button if you wouldn't mind and we'll see you again for the next episode thanks very much are we only allowed five stars yeah reviews okay. <laughs>